0: You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. You might be wondering why I've been so obsessed with the Berlin Film Festival lately. Well, first, it's because the movies that premiered there are really good, but they also bring up issues and ideas that apply to more than just the particular movies we're talking about. Whether it's the portrayal of the police on film, or how movies can mix tones in strange and provocative ways, or go from the cosmic to the everyday within a single shot. This episode wraps up this series about Berlin films, and for a grand finale, I'm happy to feature another excellent critic, Jessica Kiang. Jessica is based in Berlin, and she wrote a really sharp article for the New York Times about the festival, and wrote reviews of some standout films for Variety. Next episode, I'll be back in non-festival mode, with the very special guest, or perhaps two. As always, I invite you to support the podcast by subscribing and sharing it with people you think might enjoy it. Thank you for listening, and let's go to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a series of Berlin episodes. We have been slowly going through what's been a really strong lineup by all accounts. I'm very glad because I, I feel like I couldn't have really had uh, any sort of podcast talk about uh, the Berlin Film Festival without our guest for today. Please welcome back Jessica Kiang.
1: Hi Nick, hi Nick, and that's right. Yes, I am uh, indeed known as Miss Berlin in uh, in most circles.
0: <laughs> also, now now you'll be even more widely known uh, <laughs> for that to the, the New York New York Times audience since you you just wrote a critic's notebook. I have sort of the, the same question or prompt, I guess, as comes to mind when you, the, with a piece, which is, you know, what is it like when you're in the city that's host to usually like sort of all encompassing festival when that's not how it's happening, you know, when it's not in a physical, physical space. So you're there, but not there.
1: Yes, this Berlin has been really, really strange for me. I mean, it's been the strangest, I think, online festival that I've had in, in that, as you said in your intro, it's absolutely been one of the strongest lineups, certainly for the Berlinale and for uh, really any festival that I've seen in a while. But uh, yeah, it's been that very sort of lonely um, experience of watching all of these incredible films in this extremely sort of sterile environment where you have this very one-on-one relationship with them um, and i really found myself at one point having like a, a, a like a tangible ache for the uh, berlin ident which I, is one of my favorite festival idents and it's just this sort of um, starburst uh, of uh, little glowy uh, lights that rains down at the beginning of all of the screenings when they happen here physically and um and they haven't they didn't even use those on the online uh, platform. So, I i mean, I've just missed, I've missed everything about the way the Berlin Alley is supposed to be.
0: Well, I guess all we have is the, uh, you have this omnipresent uh, watermark of the bear parading. It looks like it's just about to per- parade off screen or, or uh, maybe it would be nice if it just sort of crossed the screen once or twice at some point during a movie, a slow point or something.
1: Exit pursued by a bear.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes. So I mean, just one more question about about the festival. I mean, because you also write uh, trade reviews. on, On the one hand, this is as ideal as it could get for this kind of format, in that it was a great slate. Most everyone pretty much agrees with that. But obviously, it's not. It can't have the same profile. But. You know, on the third hand, that's kind of by design in that this is not the actual like full public incarnation. So, I I mean, I don't know if you have a sense of how that's sort of played out. I assume people must be somewhat happy about how it's worked out.
1: I think so. And I think I think it's to the, the festival's credit that they actually don't even refer to this press and industry event, which is what they call it. They don't refer to it as an online festival. So there actually has been sort of markedly less of that stuff that we saw in Sundance, you know, the trying to, you know, do breakout rooms and, hey, cocktail hours and that kind of stuff. The announcement of the awards was an extremely low key, um, very, uh, you know, non-fanfare type deal, which was just uh, all of the the jury members phoning in from wherever they were and, you know, reading their little bit and that was it. So I think that by splitting it out this way and deferring what they're actually really calling the sort of the real Berlinale um, to the summer, I I think it's probably a better way to have approached it than to have tried to put the whole thing online and to have just sort of said, well, now we're going to just be Berlinale online. It it is nice that we get to look forward to the physical part happening around the city in the summer, uh, because that's one of the big things that I think we don't talk about enough. The Berlinale is uh, one of the particularly great festivals for the, the level of its public engagement here in Berlin. And it really does take over the center of the city to a certain degree. And it feels like something that that the Berlin public um, are themselves very invested in. So I think it's really nice that they are doing the, the summer thing.
0: Yes. No, that sounds absolutely right. So, well, let's, let's go to some of the movies that, I mean, I, again, I, I have the cheat sheet here, which you, you happen to have printed on, on an international newspaper. <laughs> uh, but what movie would leap to mind if, if, if someone said, like, what, what was closest to your heart in, uh, among the selection this year?
1: Well, it's a film that I know that you've already discussed with uh, another podcast guest, and it's okay. I mean, I understand we're not exclusive. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about with whoever you want to talk about. But I'm a little bit piqued that somebody else picked me at the post and was talking to you about uh, what do we see when we look at the sky, which is the Georgian film by a director called Alexander Koberitsche, which is my favorite film that I've seen probably all year and uh, certainly in, in Berlin. And I absolutely adored this film. I don't know how much you want to talk about. I know you've seen it as well, right?
0: Yes, I, I have seen it. How would you describe the premise of the movie? Because that was one puzzle that we were running into. It's like, you don't want to really set it up a certain way because, it, you know, it so quickly starts blooming in other directions and different directions.
1: The premise, I mean, the basis for the story is that is that this slightly Kafka-esque love story in which Two people meet and they fall inst- or they're instantly attracted to each other. They arrange to make a date, but then their meeting is is observed by an evil eye that basically places them under a curse, and they are cursed to the next day, uh, wake up looking like completely different people and also to have lost their main ability. So um, the the girl who is a pharmacist loses all of her medical knowledge and the the guy who is a footballer loses all of his uh, football skills. So And they both look like completely different people. So when they go to keep the date, neither of them recognizes the other. And how they deal with this predicament, which in the first, I think, of the film, sort of weird uh, and beautiful twists is something that they are obviously dismayed by, but not particularly surprised by. It's not like they, you know, lose their minds or, you know, go on talk shows and and talk about how this has happened. So this is already a slightly different, slightly higher-keyed world in which magic things like this can sometimes happen. And the magic world then, for me, it just becomes the story of this particular town, the story of Kutaisi in Georgia, which aside from all of its very, very many other pleasures and passions. This is a film that's like passionate about soccer and about street dogs and about falling in love and about cake and ice cream and so many delightful things of life. It is maybe one of the loveliest love letters to a hometown that I've ever seen. So we really get a sense of the geography of this place, of the history of it, of its weird little traditions, its nooks and crannies, all while he's very loosely circling back to these two people and whether or not they they will find each other again
0: that is a a good way into it for me thinking it as as a hometown symphony or a home hometown um letter in a way because the, it has these wonderful details in the voiceover where they're saying well, this is the place where people usually watch football, um, but then there's another place that some people, you know, might also, but really people stick to this other place. And that started in the, in the sixties yeah. and, and just this kind of local knowledge, local lore that you, you would never really know, but is really, that's the kind of substance of life. You know, that's where people are spending a lot of, a lot of their time.
1: I think it's also that that that's the substance of life like that's that's the the visible aspects of the substance of life, but so much of it is actually comes from things that we don't understand and uh the the great um beauty of this film for me is i think it's it's one of the best explications of the whole there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio, and um, which I think is possibly the only philosophy that I absolutely fully subscribe to. So it, it's, it talks about these very prosaic things in this town, like where you watch football or, uh, you know, the dogs who go and watch football or the, the, this cafe is beside this bridge and that cafe is beside that bridge and and the different types of people who go to each and that, that sort of thing. So he talks about these very prosaic things, but as... As though they're the, basically the manifestation of all of the other unseen and invisible forces, and sometimes supernatural or mystical forces, like the one which causes these two people to, to change identity. So that the visible world that we we are so convinced most of our time, uh, most of the time, is is all that there is. That you know we live in these very secular, very you know scientific times, and certainly we're supposed to, and yet there's something about the way he puts this film together, which really talks about how the things that we actually think are of as completely normal and banal, like a game of football or whatever it is are actually all animated by exactly that's the same superstitions and magics and things that we don't believe in anymore, but that we are affected by all the time.
0: Yeah. And also the filmmakers are not approaching this this portrait of life with an irony that kind of deflates it at the same time, because I I almost feel that, you know, uh, other filmmakers and might have wanted to just stir in a little more of a, of a remove that just that certain little distance that lets you know that they're in on a joke with you a, a little bit. It's sort of um, almost bravely. Totally invested in 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 yeah the hometown.
1: Yeah, and, and bravely invested in in this in the idea that that there's nothing to be ashamed of in believing in magic and believing in in the evil eye or whatever the opposite of the evil eye is, and and you know that you know there are things that we experience all the time, like falling in love, like uh, you know playing with a dog, like uh, a beautiful strike in in soccer or whatever it is that where we feel like they are supernatural. But you know, we because they're they're sort of relatively commonplace occurrences, we don't think too much about them. But but to to locate in those things in those moments an overt mysticism, I think is actually really sweet. And and to his to your point about his narration, especially, I think. I think it's quite the opposite, actually, of that of that distancing thing that you're talking about. It, repeatedly, he, he, I mean, he does break the fourth wall, and on several occasions, there's that bit where he tells you to, the, you know, the, the title comes up, tells you to close your eyes. And those things, to me, operate in such a strange way, because normally that sort of stuff is is a distancing technique, right? It reminds you that you're watching a movie. Um, but in each of the cases that he does that in this, and in general with, with his voiceover narration, I feel like he's doing the opposite. He's actually inviting you in. He's inviting you to participate in the creation of this movie, which is, in many ways, I mean, it's it's sprawling and it's um, indulgent. I mean, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's maybe a little bit too long. I, I know that some of the people I saw it with felt that it was a little bit too long. I, I don't. I, I could have, I wanted to actually move to Kutaisi after this, so it wasn't long enough for me. So maybe, you know, it with different eyes on, I might have felt that that way about it. But it does, he does constantly make you, as the audience, part of the creation of the film, which I think is just such a lovely and generous and warm thing to feel, um, to feel that level of connection. And it is a film that is all about connections, mystical, unseen, um, and, you know, cinema being one of those. Cinema is a very cine-literate film. He's, he's obviously enormously enthusiastic about, you know, silent movies, about different using different types of uh, shooting styles. Um, there's an iris out at one point, you know, so he's he's kind of, it's almost, it should be all over the place and it should be a horrible mess, but it is all animated by this, kind of what you're saying, by this, this you know, really generous um, and inviting uh, spirit.
0: Yes. Well, I, I think maybe uh, what, what you've been saying about uh, magic and mysticism, being a part of uh, part of life and, and uh, it might be a good way to get into um, one of the other films that, that you've seen. Um, the question is which one, because uh, there are a couple, <laughs> I don't know which one to, to, to take the plunge uh, with. Um, would it, <laughs> would it be too weird if we've 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 flipped things entirely and and looked at uh the scary of 61st for another view on (laughs) this
1: right yes okay from from the delightful to the uh truly disgusting yeah let's let's go to the scary of 61st (laughs) so you've seen this as well nick
0: Yes, I I, I couldn't resist having logged a a, a fair number of years in the neighborhood and also just looking at apartments in the neighborhood that I always suspected had this kind of story behind them. I mean, not this story, Uh, but uh, yeah.
1: So um, The Scary of 61st uh, is the first film by actress-director Dasha Nekrasova. And it's basically, I think the best description of it is uh, mumblecore giallo. Um, I think that was the, the outline of it. So there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a very uh, mumble millennial aspect to the relationships that it talks about. But it's also done very much, uh, very self-consciously in the style of, of an Italian giallo horror film. Um, and it's about these two flatmates who find kind of uh, initially inexplicably find a great place. ...on the Upper East Side, and they—that that is weirdly within their income bracket, despite the fact they should not be able to afford it. Um, but then they quickly discover that the apartment was previously owned by Jeffrey Epstein, and um, the third woman, who is actually played by the director herself mysteriously sort of shows up on their doorstep and she is investigating the many, very, very many um, conspiracy theories that have sprung up around Epstein's life and specifically death. Um, and the two women who are living there, the two young women, basically get variously obs- obsessed and possessed by this story and by, in some cases, Epstein's uh, victims and and it devolves into this extremely filthy-minded, um, uh, very deliberately, extremely offensive. I mean, I cannot say how many trigger warnings I think we should probably plaster even this discussion in, but also a very inventive and actually weirdly uh, angry, like like justifiably angry film um, that is really quite without precedent, I think, in terms of how bravely and to the point of actual recklessness it tackles um some incredibly uh, uncomfortable topics
0: yeah i i mean i have to agree i mean it was almost surprising to me that it didn't set off some little f- furor of, of reaction to it i mean maybe it did and i wasn't aware aware of it
1: there's there's time yet it, i'm 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 certain it will happen
0: <laughs> so there's a yeah there's a ticking time bomb awaiting us with this because yeah, it is. It's a bizarre film, but also just bizarre because it's so disturbing, but also just so madcap, if that's the word. I mean, at the same time, it's sort of self-consciously trashy in its approach, in the sense that it imitates basically a nineteen eighties thriller slash horror movie. You know, with the font, the the usual accoutrements now, a lot of people do this, the font of the credits, the, you know, heavy brooding kind of repeating synth runs that keep happening. And I think it's actually shot on on Kodak Film as well, which gives it now almost kind of ages it a, a little bit. And that plus, of course, the like already... Just that the neighborhood in in the Upper East Side of New York already just has the feel of being from stuck in another era anyway. And all of that to tell the story from these kind of two strange conversion viewpoints. One, they're two roommates. One is basically consciously, you know, absolutely obsessed uh, with the story and doing research as a result of a third character who just comes knocking on the door once who's played by Dasha Nekrasova, kind of doing what looks like an impersonation of Chloe Savigny and immediately just draws her into just this mind meld wormhole of obsession about conspiracy theories, but fueled by like just absolute justified rage uh, against the the kind of facts of, of the history and, 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 and everything surrounding it, which is kind of a, I don't know if you'd call it like a yeah, a bold or risky move because, you know, I think, as as you said, that th- there is so much to be angry about that it is awful. But it, the, the technique that's being used here is to kind of kind of dig into it through this um, just kind of flagrantly over the top conspiracy theory uh, uh, a- angle in.
1: Yeah, that's the the thing, surely, that, that I, I think is actually going to be the, the most hot button, you know, part of this. While of course there's some, to me anyway, hilarious bits about the royal family, um, and there's some really um, ex- extremely profane and you know sexually very graphic moments in it. I think actually what is what has the potential to give the most offence is, is exactly what you're saying. It's it, that it's it can be seen as an incredibly flippant treatment of an incredibly serious subject. So unless you're on the wavelength where you can. Identify its rage and its righteously placed rage um, in this very flippant, very you know, flagrantly trashy, all of those things framework. Um, then I think it's it would be quite easy to just to bypass any any sort of enjoyment uh, with it and just be provoked immediately into a kind of uh, an outrage position.
0: Yeah, and 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 then there's then there's also just the way the uh, the other roommate is is treated as a character she kind of gets drawn into this web in in the more traditional thriller manner which is that she seemingly becomes possessed <laughs> so her entrance into this world is kind of an unconscious one which is kind of interesting to have these like very consciously focused person and then very like unconsciously drawn in and she also just has this classic like dumbass uh boyfriend who's completely oblivious so, it's just interesting to put it though, side by side that she gets drawn into this world. Um, but meanwhile, just experiencing the most like recognizable and, and, and common treatment <laughs> with, with her doofus um, guy. <laughs> so, I don't really know. I have not listened to Dasha Nekrasova's podcast, uh, Red Scare, mm. uh, a great deal. But I wonder if a little bit about the movie uh you know comes out of the kind of complicated tone and uh, kind of invigoratingly brash approach on that podcast um you know feeds into it feeds into this as well so it's yeah it'll be interesting to see how people receive it yeah just the last thing i wanted to mention is that i almost thought of you know other 80s movies experimental movies lo-fi stuff were seeking to shock which kind of you know, also come out of a, a rage about patriarchal, awful extremes and abuses. Uh, you're just sort of 80s New York downtown filmmakers. I'm kind of thinking that uh, you you also have body art and that sort of thing, which kind of comes into play here just because of the extremes that one of the roommates
1: goes through. Yeah, and it's also, I think, it's, it can also be part of the sort of the, the history of, uh, of apartment horror, right, as well, on, on some level that, that there's, you know, there's there are certain shades of a kind of a, of a repulsion or rosemary's baby or whatever or that's you know that that sort of um the idea that the place that you live in can hold on to the memories of the of the horrible things that were done there and that they can in turn then reinfect you there's a fine tradition of that as well um i suppose in this sort of more pastiche vein the film that it most reminded me of was uh, alex ross perry's queen of earth um and i think I also, I mean, I don't want to overstate how much I adored this film. I didn't really adore it. I think it's really interesting and I think there's loads of really interesting things going on and I I really uh, admire uh, how much it goes for it in in many ways. I, I, I think it ends slightly unsatisfyingly. I think that the end is the only time where it feels like she wasn't super sure about how to finish this off and so opts for ambivalence where where the entire rest of the film is not ambivalent at all Mm. um so there's that but like even the fact that for me that the touchstones are already themselves films that are pastiches so although it is done in this kind of jalo manner i think it's also done in this very knowing like slightly postmodern modern J- way so so the films that it reminds me of most are films that are themselves pastiches of jalo, rather than it reminding me of jalo itself if you see what i mean um so there's certain layers of kind of um artifice and things that are going on there that's too slightly distance me from it and in a way i think that's one of the things that helps me process some of its more outrageous moments because they are put for me put behind several layers of remove
0: yeah i I absolutely agree absolutely right about that because i think that's that's the only way that some of the things that happen in the movie um are (laughs) uh you can live with
1: yeah the use that she makes of the Prince Andrew memorabilia um, is is I have to say then absolutely one of my favorite things that I that I saw during this festival. Um, I'm sure that just points me out as an extremely sick puppy
0: <laughs> I, I somehow fear I'm going to be drawn into this conspiracy world if I if I contemplate this any, any longer
1: or you're just going to get cancelled
0: <laughs> right exactly yeah I condemn it just to be clear <laughs> um, moving right along. So that was the scary of 61st, which also just the title is, I'll just flag the title because it's, it sounds like some combination of like uh, a weird, like children's horror book um, and also like a Jalo translation, but also like a self-conscious joke about like what goes to 61st, the horror of 61st, Uh, the scary of 61st, you know, I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) well, what should we, uh, what, what should we talk about uh, next?
1: We can talk about Alice Diop's "We."
0: Yes, uh, absolutely.
1: Okay, so um, this is very fresh in my mind because I've only just watched it. Um, uh, so I watched it actually after already it had been announced as the winner of the Encounters section. And it's a documentary from from uh, Afro-French uh, documentarian filmmaker Alice Diop. Um, uh, she's uh, got a Senegalese background, I believe. But um, she has worked for quite a while in This kind of register of very on the ground, um, socially relevant and socially aware portraits of the suburban Parisian region. Where she grew up, and to my shame, I have not seen any of her films before. And when I heard that she heard this had won, it's again a documentary. I won the Encounter section. I have to say, I was a little bit disappointed. And this is not having seen the film. Um, I and I think I went into it then slightly with my dukes up because, um, as we've been saying several times, this has been an amazingly good uh, selection, and there have been some terrific films in the Encounter sidebar that uh, I think I, I was sort of... And I, I think I assumed that because the top prize had um, gone to this documentary and because I knew loosely the the kind of documentary uh, register in which she works, I felt like it was kind of a cop-out, like that they weren't, you know, really awarding the most innovative or the most uh, provocative thing that they could have done from that, from that selection. So, you know, more fool me um, because... Even like for the first hour or so, I think I was probably quite smug in that assessment as well of of this film. It's two hours long. It's not it's not crazy long or anything, but where it's it's a documentary. And again, she's uh, dealing a lot with the with the the suburbs, but actually she goes a little bit further out this time. So it it loosely follows the line of a, a suburban rail line that goes through Paris. Um, And that leads from the suburbs into sort of the exurbs, I suppose you call them, and then out uh, a little bit further into this sort of countryside surrounding Paris it's divided into lots of different sections and she's basically illuminating some of the lives of the people who live in this uh, area along along this this train track and so for the first hour or so i very much felt i mean it's it's very good there's no there's no denying that it's you know an absolutely sincere and authentic piece of documentary filmmaking work and it's really you know motivated from a, a, not just a kind of a sociological perspective but also a very personal one at some at one point she starts to include um old home video footage of her own uh, parents um, and her growing up and she, her voiceover starts to come in in very confessional mode talking about her relationship not with just with her parents but actually with the images that that are, remain of them and actually specifically with their paucity that there's not enough of them and how she feels and the sense of loss she feels for all the moments that weren't recorded, and for those times spent with her her mother and father that that are that there is no longer any trace of because they weren't they weren't captured um, by camera. So there's, there's also you know the, the filmmaking aspect of it as well. So you know, again for the first hour or so I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like you no know, well this is very very good but again I don't really think it's you know necessarily that groundbreaking. And then. I mean, honestly, something happened to me or to the film or both uh, in the second half of it. And certainly towards the very end, it just ramps up and ramps up. And then for, for me, especially the very last two segments of the film really just absolutely blew it into a different stratosphere. There's And there, there's on, on the surface, they shouldn't. Um, on the surface, there's nothing that sort of astounding about them. But the, so the second last one is her, an interview that she does with um, a, a French writer who's a, like a 70 year old white man. And Alice Diop herself appears on screen and they're, they're talking. And it's just this incredible meeting of minds between two people who ostensibly shouldn't have that much in common. Um, but a really a real meeting of creative and intellectual energies um, and their conversation just really suddenly makes sense of everything that we've been watching up to that point in this film in an absolutely thrillingly intellectual way, like a really, it really sort of blew my mind. Um, And I suddenly felt like such an idiot for not having felt those things before um, and not having noticed those uh, strands of connection going on in the film before this moment but then from so from that moment on i was just like okay so new newly minted alice diop stan here um, and then the, the very last segment that it goes into immediately after that is probably the most atypical in that it follows a a hunt So while we have been watching lots of kids um, playing and and guys hanging out, shooting the shit, um, drinking beers in the park and stuff and uh, followed the story of of Diop's sister, who's a a community care nurse followed the story of a guy from Mali who has uh, an immigrant from Mali who's waiting for his documentation. So we've followed all these, you know, very sort of ordinary, um, a lot of them very working class, uh, largely sort of marginalized or disenfranchised lives or, or certainly those that would have been regarded as such. And then at the, the very last um, segment, which echoes the very first enigmatic prologue that she has, it, it follows this hunt. Um, so an actual ritual hunt. I think it's a deer hunt that they're going on, but it's guys on horses in these uniform, these ridiculous uniforms, the sort of. Uh, green jackets with um, those trumpet things uh, that wrap around their bodies and like, you know, baying hounds and they're going off to hunt deer. Um, and it's, you know, this is a modern day happening and it's these, so so just the juxtaposition of all of those things before, and then this thing, and you suddenly realize, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, glued together by some of the ideas that have been released in that interview uh, se- segment that she has. Suddenly, just really expand this film into being a truly like colossal statement of what it is to be a contemporary French person, and you know, really make sense of this this the, the title, which is just "We nous. um uh, and, and you know, who gets to who gets to decide who "we" is, and uh, who gets to be included in the idea of "we," and who gets to be, who is excluded. Um, it's just fascinating. I wholly recommend it. And I think now, having seen it all, it is actually a very worthy winner.
0: Yeah, the just the span of experience in the movie is uh, absolutely in, intriguing me. And yeah, making sense of, of the title, not to go on about titles, although I, I do sort of subscribe to the... Douglas Sirk said something once about titles that they're the equivalent of a prologue in a drama for in, in the case of movies. So they, they can function like that yeah in this case that that really uh, opens it up for me
1: yeah you and you already discussed taste
0: did discuss taste. it's definitely a movie that no one person is going to make sense of, i think, <laughs> but you you were a fan generally yes,
1: no, I loved it I, I think it's I think it's great, and it made total sense to me. I am that one person, I can totally make sense of it um... <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I don't think it didn't make sense in a bad way. It's more just I was happily just watching. And yeah, we were comparing, I guess a lot of people have, to uh, you know, Tsai Ming-Liang movies um, where there's just this different order uh, being uh, arranged in front of you. And it's absolutely absorbing, absolutely beautiful. But I guess to its credit, I'm not always like drawing definite bold lines and saying this is what this is and this is what that is. I- yeah,
1: I think, I mean, it's a, of a particular type. I think I, I found less Simon Yang and more Pedro Costa probably in, in the film myself. But for me, it's, it's very much, um, I have to say, I have to preface this as well with, I think even mentioning Pedro Costa, who's a, 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 a filmmaker I admire greatly, but I've traditionally had, you know, quite um, a, a rocky relationship with. I'm, I'm sometimes wholly on board, as I was with Vitalinia Varela, and sometimes absolutely not, as I wasn't with um, uh, Horse Money, for example, or, or se- several of his others. So even to say that, you know, to to, to hold that up as a comparison for, for taste, um, which is a, a a debut film from a Vietnamese filmmaker, is a strange thing for me to then say that how much I I liked Taste. And it was really the film that I think has made me challenge and sort of question myself the the most um, about how much this whole experience of lockdown, the whole experience of watching films online and doing festivals online has changed my taste or has has, you know, reformulated my taste. Um, and in some ways I feel like it's made it narrower and in other ways I feel like it's expanded. And one of the things I think that it has expanded to include is films like Taste. Actually, the way I describe it, I think in my review is that for, for me it's it's not a film that anything happens over the span of the film but take any single one of its scenes and everything is happening in that. So you, can, you can slice any single one of its scenes. It almost becomes like um, walking around a gallery or uh, maybe a, a very experimental sort of dance uh, happening that its story, in as much as it has one, it exists in its very small and in its very still, often very still and wordless tableaus more so than it exists across the span of the film, if that
0: makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. I I, I mean, almost like a memory palace or something. Yeah. Like, that really does shed a new light on the film for me. Uh, I mean, I, almost the challenge for me with taste is thinking through the rest of the movie because it really so much dominates in my mind. Even in the beginning, I kind of remember well because it's so... I mean, there's something so uh, mournful uh, about the the beginning, just the footballer character being ejected from this team, which already is is such a glum looking ersatz football uh, setup. Mm -hmm. How did you read the way the the movie uh, concludes, even just the whole, not just the very ending, but just the whole kind of concluding sequences?
1: Um, well, just to, to talk about, yeah, the, the sort of the contrast between these these very Spartan interiors, I think actually it, what you said was really interesting that you describe it as a kind of a memory palace. And I, from what I read about the, the film subsequently, I understand that it is, um, you know, a lot of the, the scenes and a lot of the the literal the views that we get um, are kind of cold from Le Bao, who is the uh, the filmmaker from his from his memories of his of his early childhood in Vietnam. And so, uh, yes, I think that, that there is a certain degree of recreation of, of memory. But what I think is so uh, admirable and, and just deeply artistic about it is is in this the way that those memories are presented. Um, and and I think that that's quite it's almost weirdly accurate to the way you remember things because you don't remember everything in hyper clear detail. So the fact that the walls and the, you know, the, the benches and these rooms are, are sort of stripped down to their almost, ab- to all, until they're almost abstractions of themselves. Like the, the, the military style bunk bed that they have there is, is, is almost an abstraction of a bunk. And most of the time they're, you know, they're, they're cooking or, or, um, and, and, and it's foodstuffs and plants and animals that are the only things that are really lifted by the um, out of the out of the this very gloomy palette that he uses, which I think is re- a really interesting choice as well. And that I suppose is how I have interpreted the ending, and I've interpreted those scenes that that take place outside of this um, very abstract kind of version of a of a Saigon tenement um, slum building. Um, so, so those scenes that happen outside in nature. I mean, nature. There's one one scene. I don't know if you remember where he goes and he basically he prays against the the um, struts of a very overgrown and um, decrepit looking stadium, uh, football stadium, uh, and he's he's issuing this prayer to God, um, and, mm. and 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 that moment, um, the the you know it's the the stadium is 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 being almost completely overtaken by nature, um, and then. I think the very end scene. I guess that you t- I'm, I'm not sure if it's the very last shot, but I'm sure one of the things that you're talking about here is this moment where uh, this the character, the Nigerian footballer who's who's living now in, in Saigon, he no longer is able to be uh, employed as a footballer because I think he's injured and um, he's dropped from the team. So he goes. He just basically walks into a hugely verdant green bank of of uh, undergrowth and almost disappears from view. And I think that a lot of the film, uh, one of the main themes of the film to me is this notion of how, how far we have lost ourselves, that we have basically sort of repudiated our relationship to nature, um, the way that we treat animals as well. There's a pig that recurs in, in the... the and, and whether or not we are actually treating each other better than we treat the animals that we then slaughter and kill. Um, so I think for, for me... I, I interpreted a lot of that in terms of uh, mankind's um relationship to, to its extremely far back history. So the other thing then that's really interesting about this is while there's while there are certain scenes that I think are deliberately evocative of or inevitably evocative of uh kind of cultural um issues and you know issues of globalization, of immigration, of uh, historical oppression of of black people for example there's that moment where they're where the black players are being um measured with calipers uh, for their fitness to play i guess and i for me it it absolutely recalls images that we've seen of of slaves at, at an auction being sort of sized up like livestock um, and then similarly the the women they're very frequently naked so when those women are sort of these naked female Asian bodies uh, arranged around that military-style bunk, and oftentimes there'll be a couple having sex in the background of this, it sort of, to me, inevitably recalled stories of the comfort women or of prostitution during the Vietnam War, all of those things. So there, there are all of these very evocative images that summon up those things, but I think that his Uh, essential thesis really goes goes sort of further back even than culture further back than those historical uh, touch points like way way far back to the point at which you know back to when when humans decided we were different from animals and whether or not maybe that whole thing was a mistake Um, because you know they, they basically live in such degraded concrete circumstances that are themselves an offshoot of Uh, in inverted commas, um, human civilization. But they're so Spartan and so gloomy and so sunless. Um, And so I think that there is, to a certain degree, a kind of a a longing to allow the sunshine in.
0: Yeah, that is a really beautiful and fascinating way of understanding the movie that, again, like sheds a new light on it to me. And also, you know, this is something I'm periodically aware of uh, that can kind of happen with movies that really surprise you and kind of jam your circuits at first jam my circuits at first which is that you know as i began i think ah, i i i hardly know how to how to make sense of this and then it becomes that kind of movie that people talk about like oh this wacky movie so i think that's a really astute way of, of framing the movie as more than also just the kind of stylistic exercise or like bravura demonstration that it can seem because I, it It's also that because it takes such incredible control from production design to, you know, blocking <laughs> and choreography of, of the actors in it. And, and then also that makes me think of the those line, a couple of lines that are just dropped in the Georgian film, like a couple of, you know, eyedropper drops of, I don't know, something extremely potent. Mm. Uh, when the voiceover at one point ha- has that line about yeah. people going indifferently through life, but, you know, actually... W- people looking back might consider this an age of just the absolute total atrocity because of the treatment of animals and, and millions of animals. That are, yeah. And you sort of hear that. I hear that in the movie and I'm like, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm so glad that you brought up that moment in the film as well, because I, I don't know if you remember it's, it follows directly on from probably the most transcendent moment of the film, which is the four minute long slow motion football match that plays out while Gianna Nannini's um, uh, World Cup 1990, the best World Cup of all time, incidentally, if you're Irish, like I am. While that, <laughs> that theme song plays out in its entirety, the theme song is really cheesy, you know, her, her vocals, it's all vocal fry rock, ty- uh, Italian rock, and the kids are playing football just on a neighborhood little scrap of, of lawn or whatever it is, but being treated as these heroes, you know, whenever they you know, get into a scuffle, whatever, all this slow motion and it's it's such a, a truly ec- ecstatic moment. I really felt the 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 back of my head lift off while I was watching this. I, it just made me so happy. And it it ends when one of the girls I think kicks the ball and it sort of arcs away. And then lands in the river that flows through Kutaitse, and then we sort of pan up we follow follow the football for a little while and then we go to this shot of the mountains and his voiceover this 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 part of the voiceover that you're talking about then sounds out and it's the only time in it where he's he brings in again and i I feel it's it's like a um a way of reminding us of bringing us back to ourselves in a way of of reminding us that we are engaged in watching a film but that were also participating in that film but yes so when he says those lines which are basically about um you know global atrocity and about uh, animals dying in forest fires and about how the people of the future might look back on this time we, we we assume he's talking about this time now but that the people of the future might look back on this time and really wonder how it is that we were able to go about our everyday lives with their little bits of magic in them without you know just constantly being um appalled and in horror at the uh, the atrocities that are going on in the world and for one second I had this glimmer of worry that he was going the film was going to take a very didactic turn and suddenly sort of start scolding me but it's the fact that then he ends that with and so you know so that's that but you know let's not think about that and let's go back to the story and, and he does. And then you know, we don't ever go back to that again. So part of that for me was the this, this sort of the relief. And I've just found it really funny that somebody can be making this quirky, offbeat, weird little Georgian love story film and then, you know, see fit to halfway through, remind everyone of an incredibly serious thing and incredibly dreadful things that are happening in the world. And then just be like... Ah yeah and anyway let's go back to the to the main thing. Um so yeah for me, I, I i see you i see you where you where you got from from uh, from from taste to this but but i i think it's almost like being used for the for the opposite effect in in the in the Jordan film.
0: Yeah no that's true yeah i and i had forgotten that that it comes comes after the uh the miniature um football music highlights reel <laughs> um the- <laughs> the homemade highlights i there've been a number of movies that have been using slow motion in really funny ways uh, or just really interesting ways that entire sequence is in slow motion so you get i mean my heart goes out to these kids for for being immortalized like this if anyone did a slow motion of me engaged in any physical activity um you know they're very sweet and it's wonderful (laughs) um Weirdly, that kind of thread of of all things, the slow motion thread, but also just the mixing of of tones and very kind of hyper local intimate uh, viewpoint versus a kind of global suddenly settled view of things brings to mind uh, a cop movie. The slow motion is just that there's there's one scene of someone going off a diving board, which just in, in one shot just kind of gets your heart sinking kind of mood. But uh, I mean, the whole movie is definitely a, a mix in every sense because at first it seems to be almost like uh reality show sort of approach, looking at a cop on the beat and then two cops on the beat. And, you know, they talk to the camera. And I mean, pretty quickly you realize that it's more staged than not and that it is an actor because. You know, it almost becomes like a running joke when she's talking to the camera, like she's talking to the camera out out her, the window of her moving car, which is not really how that's usually shot, um, or just kind of yeah, in, in the middle of of like a, a room, she'll, she'll be addressing the camera, and, and this is in Mexico City. Basically, almost with every further chapter or slice, we, we get a, a kind of grimmer understanding of what the police force is like and the level of corruption. And later in the movie, they introduce the actual police officers on which the, the characters are based and also give you these sequences where we see the actors preparing. I mean, I don't know how you know, stage that is that they are, quote unquote, preparing a a script and that sort of thing. But just cutting these layers that uh, reminded me of A Man Vanishes. Maybe I've gotten the wrong uh, Imamura film, but sort of an investigative story where they're constantly kind of taking back the layers of what's going on, appealing back the layers of what's going on and the levels of artifice uh, of of the filmmaking itself as well. But that consequently, that's why this movie sent me on a real uh, up and down path of emotions, because initially it's just the kind of these thrills that are somewhat familiar, you know, from any story of, of a cop's life, which is like one day you're giving a traffic ticket, the next day you're delivering a baby and then kind of spirals out or kind of grinds slowly to a halt as you realize just the morass of corruption and, you know, you scratch my back, just the endlessness of it all that completely entraps these two police officers. All of which is also an interesting movie to make, given you know the past year how how viewpoints of police forces in the U.S. but also across the world have kind of complicated and deepened. And this is a movie that also actively situates itself in in the cop in a cop movie lineage from the title, but also just again the, the opening Lalo Schifrin instrumentals and kind of montage of the credits and, and then that sort of thing. Um, before proceeding to dismantle any idea of, of gritty glory, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know what what did what did you th- what did you th- also correct anything? I'm sure I got some of that a little muddled.
1: It's a muddling film. I mean, it, it's a difficult, slippery film to try and get a handle on. But I think yeah, what what you're saying is right. Well, but although for me as well, the, the unfolding chapters don't just sort of reveal further layers to, as you're saying, that the, the morass you know further further ways in which the entire system of policing in mexico but also is it's sort of implied uh, it, almost anywhere is kind of a, a me- mechanism to eradicate any idealism any idealism or any the people who get into it for the right reasons basically the system is designed to grind those reasons out of you, but also then uh, on a filmmaking level, the subsequent chapters each reveal a new layer of metafiction, which is what this director uh, Ruiz Palacios really deals in. I think he's it's, he's such an interesting combination of like a, a truly like inspired classicist in many ways. He has this beautiful cinematographical style um, he has a really cinephiliac kind of appreciation um, and uh, sort of homaging of, of various things which he doesn't do maybe so much in this film but certainly in his last film museum with gael garcia bernal i should warn you i am like the world's biggest museum fan i loved that movie so much so i was really excited coming into this to see some of those traits carry over into what is a very very meta 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 docu fiction hybrid whatever however you're going to classify this this particular film and all of those subsequent layers i think of of metatextuality of self-referentialism of reflexivity and drawing attention to the performativity especially of the two actors who we are there, i and i agree with you i don't think we're ever actually supposed to think that they are the real people i mean and it's you were talking about the way that the narration is true or the the way she talks to the camera but she talks in these wonderfully eloquent full sentences which are clearly you know scripted pieces and yes she's talking to the camera but the cameras outside and the camera is often then also doing something very interesting that a documentary camera just simply couldn't do he has a style where, where he, he often uses these very formally beautifully framed compositions but then creeps in very slowly and if you were you know trying to follow some action that's that you don't know how it's going to pan out, you, you couldn't possibly set up a shot and light a shot so beautifully. Um, so I think that, that from the very outset, just everything in the cinematographic language tells us that we're watching a piece of fiction. But he certainly does play with the idea that that a lot of what we are watching is the kind of thing that we would expect to see in a documentary about, about policing, in a documentary following some cops. And that then, for me, adds the other layer, apart from the sort of the direct critique of Policing and of, of what it is that the police stand for, and and of this this grinding out of anybody's idealism about their their, their position in the police force. It also, I think, um, in a, and maybe this is too uh, sort of arcane or abstruse a thought, but it it also talks to me a little bit about the role that the movies, um, specifically cop movies and TV, have played in creating our impression of what cops are supposed to be. um, And I'm thinking specifically of the show Cops as well. I think I read sometime a whole thing about how the show Cops, in being so ludicrously popular, but obviously being a thing that was, you know, an entertainment, actually created this sort of self-fulfilling cycle of there was a whole generation of new recruits, police cadets who were going into the police academy, I guess, to to emulate what they saw as what a cop was, which is they had only learnt from the show Cops. So therefore, that then becomes what a cop is. And I think that a cop movie, that this, this film, questions a lot of that as well. It questions not just how much cops have infiltrated the, the cinematic landscape, but how much the cinematic landscape has actually then rebounded back into the idea of what a cop is.
0: Yeah, I I think that's really true, and I I think I read the same thing uh, about the cops show. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely something I grew up with, um, and it's why I'm a police officer today. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm not. Um, yeah, because it is fascinating when you when you think about the the, the level of artifice, the idea that a particular style of like pseudo realism could be particularly ins- could be ins- would be inspiring obviously what's happening on the screen you know people bring order to these situations that invariably involve someone just like screaming their head off in a house which is just the way that that show inculcates a certain like viewpoint of anyone who is in any sort of distress or whatever is happening and that the police officer comes and solves it and it's it's all happening so fast and you know seat to the pants and that's also the style so the style really <laughs> informs you the style of policing in a way that's that's just a Crazy feedback loop to start thinking about. Now I'm kind of fascinated to learn what movies are most popular. Is there like a Michael Mann contingent of of fandom on on police uh, bulletin boards or something, where everyone is gratified by the soulfulness?
1: Yeah, yeah. Or like, or or how Serpico plays these days, because you know Serpico is essentially right. He's a rat, right? So you know, although he's the hero. Yeah, all of those sort of the, the gritty cop movies of the seventies. I, I really do wonder how they how they play amongst the police force now.
0: Yeah, uh, and but I just want to jump back to uh, the idea of performance. Um, you know, playing a cop because they do have this like very explicit line in the movie. You know, cops are like actors. Uh, we pretend within reality, mm-hmm. which I mean, I don't know maybe saying it now sounds on on the nose, but actually I think uh, Ruiz Palacios is pretty fascinated by the conundrum of projecting and performing authority i just thought that's bold that he's portraying many shades to that experience
1: really true yeah that line between between the projection of authority and the exercise of it is is a really is is exactly the line that he dances back and forth over in this and you know how much your your constant performance will then actually it does to some extent, you know, degrade or invade who you actually are, which I think is so fascinating. And it's so fascinating to do this in the loose framework, extremely loose framework framework of, of something that you could call a cop movie. You know, when we were talking before about how the scary of 61st is going to be received in a similar way, I'm a cop movie. Possibly the the, least, the most unbelievable thing about it is that it's a Netflix original. So a cop movie. There's going to be a film called a cop movie on Netflix on people's Netflixes, which is about you know Mexico City cops and what people are going to get when they when they click on that because there isn't you know there isn't a, a genre under that little tab on on your Netflix screen for you know meta fictional docu hybrids. Uh, investigations of policing. Um, so, you know, it's going to be there under, I don't know, what is it going to be under? Action movies? Um, I have no idea. I'm really curious to see how it fares, especially on that platform.
0: If you like cop movies, <laughs> you might like a cop movie.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so, um, so yes, the, so that is, uh, in case you missed it, that we're talking about a cop movie. Any final films you wanted to mention? Or
1: sure, I, I feel I feel bad that we haven't got to discuss Céline Chiamas Petite Maman, which is uh, obviously Chiamas follow up to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which was something of an art house blockbuster last year. And I think it probably doesn't actually flatter uh, the film uh, really to compare it to Portrait, which was already kind of an outlier in in Chiamas film- filmography. Mamon, you Maman is her much, much uh, more back on her former, on her earlier form of films like Tomboy and Water Lilies. And in fact, it's smaller than either of those as well. Um, for the good reason that I believe um, Céline Chiamat, she, she actually conceived and put the film together and wrote it and shot it all within this strange period of lockdown. So she, she had actually... She wanted to devise a story that would be small enough and contained enough that she would be able to to shoot it under whatever restrictions there were, without making a film about lockdown. So you know nobody wears a mask in it. It's not that 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 kind of thing. But I mean, as as beautiful and as sort of perfectly contained as it is uh, to me, a, a small thing as it, as it is, there's almost a, an element to it as well, which is uh, kind of an an exercise to show that you can actually create classical beautiful stories even within these restrictions even under those restrictions even under these circumstances that there are still there's still a way uh not just in the technical sense but even just there's still um there's still a part of your mind that can create stories that are more timeless and that are not necessarily infected on all possible levels of the words with this virus
0: i mean there is such an elegance to it that this is like a you know like a Bob Dylan song that's like you know writing a fresh old folk song. This mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Celine Siyama's uh, movie here is like writing like a new old tale or fairy tale or fable or something. so I, I, I really admire it for for that. Um, and I remember watching My Life is a Corget, which you know <laughs> just how she has written children and and the way they talk or think has always been something I'd liked.
1: Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what I think her her great strength. She was almost famous for it before Portrait made her famous for the stuff that's in Portrait. But um, before that, I think she was really regarded and rightly as one of the great chroniclers of childhood, and it's because she has this. Almost uncanny ability to, to look at children with and to, to instill in her child characters a sense of their personhood and a, a respect for the dignity of them as people, even though they're very, very young it's a really unusual um, talent to have. And I think it's one that is very easily brushed aside or, you know, if people can do that, oh, she only does coming of age stories or whatever it is um, and actually can, can miss the singular talent that she has with children.
0: I mean, what's remarkable is that there's kind of a long stretch in the beginning of the movie where you don't really know where it's, it's going to go.
1: Um, There's little moments where it almost feels like it's might, might be a ghost story. She just at one point she in the in the night in this unfamiliar house she goes to get a glass of water, and something about the way that that's shot you suddenly think oh is this going to take a kind of a chilling eerie turn, um, and it and then it goes in a different direction so yeah again I think that's also such a testament to Shama's invention and and her control that she can actually know where she's going and and be so confident getting there that she can use these little feints and sort of parry them into something different without us, without ever feeling like she's cheating us.
0: Yes. I almost hesitate to build up the movie too much because it is, you know, doing just what it's doing. And it's, it's not like, there's no like bonfire chant scene. (laughs) Like that's something that that kind of, you know, fills the theater because it's not really that kind of movie. I'd like to think it I feel like I'm inadvertently like writing pull quotes here, but I'd like to think that it kind of fills each person's individual mind or heart or memory. It's just the way this particular movie works, I think. I don't know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, one thing I kind of, I wanted to hear what you thought about these uh, little sequences where with her new friend slash, you know, girl mom, petite mammo um, they they play games and they they kind of do a little play um, and they do play acting and they like learn lines and they put on like costumes and they they're almost more the kids like this literally the actors are more expressive in those little play acting roles than they are in their other interactions especially when an adults around but when they're play acting they're really like into it. I don't know. What, what did you make, make?
1: Well, well, having once been an eight year old girl myself, um, I, I found that really uh, relatable, actually. Um, I, I'm actually I've long been really fascinated by the, the realization that I had, you know, early on that there are so, there are going to be times that are the last times you do something and you never know that when you're doing it, that it's the last time. And I remember having this, you know, vaguely philosophical thought when I was quite little and getting sort of obsessed by this notion of like really getting obsessed by the, and, and upset by the idea that that I might never do X, Y, or Z thing, whatever silly thing it was that I would do as a kid again. Um, and I wouldn't have realized that the last time I did it was was that, that last time. And early on when they're talking about um, uh, the grandmother who has died and they're still in the, the nursing home, they have a whole exchange. The mother and, and the her young daughter have this whole exchange about uh I didn't, you know, I didn't do it right, I didn't say goodbye right because and you, well, you didn't know it was the last time, you couldn't know it was the last time. And they sort of almost do a little enactment, like a reenactment of of that final moment so that she can she can say goodbye properly. Um and in my very uh literal mind, I was like, in that moment, is that the moment that the sort of the freaky Friday, the freaky Vrondody thing happens here, where there's a sort of a some sort of, you know, psychic transference or something. Um, but without I mean, it's not that. So please don't don't take that as some sort of interpretation of this film. But um, yeah, so to get back to what you're saying about the, the way the kids interact, I think that partly I, what I really loved about that was that it's the flip side to to the young girls as you say somewhat affectless but also um very precocious um uh, performance in, in in other areas like some of the the very wise child things that she says um, and she's obviously a very bright kid and obviously very curious and questioning uh and talented in her way and you know really it is, is a deep thinker for an eight-year-old Um, And those are all um, tropes, I think, that we're all a little bit sick of, or I'm certainly kind of very wary of, that the the precocious child is is one of the least um, appealing um, cinematic characters. Uh, And so to have her be able to sort of dispense these small nuggets of uh, childish wisdom on the one hand, but then also see her flipping pancakes and giggling and dressing up and I- embarking on this incredibly elaborate uh, uh make believe session which I genuinely remember having done i I used to do that I, I I really wish I could remember the impulse and the the sense of community that I had with my friends where we used to do that it was just a thing that we did and so i I love that aspect of this film especially I think it might be my favorite aspect of the film that she gets that about kids um, and that there is somehow encoded into it this idea of at some point there will be the last time that those kids put on beads and pretend to be the countess or whatever they're they're doing because it's a film uh, in in many ways about last times.
0: Yeah those scenes are are so wonderful and Not only might you think about the last time you do one of those things, but those are also impossible times that she's sharing with her mother, Uh, you know, just the sheer impossibility that they are able to play and be together on that level. I mean, that's also what makes it so, yeah, I'll go ahead and say magical.
1: Yes, it's kind of, it's the tragedy of not ever being able to see your mother in a certain light. It's not ever being, you know, however close you are to her and however much you love her, not ever being able to truly understand her. And um, this is a sort of a, a beautifully fantastical way of addressing that tragedy, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and and a deep act of empathy in, in doing so. Well, I think we can uh, conclude there. Those are a number of Berlin movies, and I hope everyone will look out for these as they wend their way through festivals um, and eventually to screens, actual, physical, larger-than-a-person screens. But thank you so much, Jessica, for a terrific conversation, um, and I hope you get to unwind and and also get to get out of the the headspace of the laptop festival world that that we've all been thrust into. (laughs)
1: Oh, no, unfortunately, I'm a, I fear I'm lost to the world forever. This is it. Goodbye, forever.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be sure to check in.
1: <laughs> All right,
0: <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll talk again soon. Sure. Bye. You've been listening to the last thing I saw with your host Nicholas Repold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at Repold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song Monserrat. Thank you for listening.